According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Our passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 7. So join me there once again in Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, we're really in the midst of verse 12 at the moment. We uh, got most of our way through 11 and 12 last week. Communion Sundays are always shorter and didn't get as far as I thought, which I never do. But uh, we're talking about the obvious. And as we talk about the obvious today, it's going to get more obvious. And so as things are obvious and more obvious, we all should be able to see them. And they should be plain. They should be obvious. We should be able to say, well, duh. And then we can explain it to others and proceed forward in the obviousity of, uh, of those blessings. And so the hypothetical question says, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, or on the basis of it, the people received the law. But again, the question is, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? And that's a powerful question. And there's really only one answer. The answer is none. There is no need. If, if, if Levitical priesthood could provide perfection, then there's the plan of God for you and we don't need to replace it. It does not need to have a prophesied Melchizedek priesthood on the way. But the fact is, Psalm 110 prophesied that Messiah would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so the fact that the promise gets made, the fact that it's anticipated for Messiah to be a priest, that speaks volumes. That tells you right there that Levitical priesthood could not perfect anything. And it was never designed to. All right, so that's what we're dealing with here last weekend again today. So before we get started, let's ask our Father for His blessings upon these things, that He would open our eyes to see how obvious the obvious can be. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, it is a thrill to be a disciple, to be a learner. And the fact that not only did you send your son to pay the price of our sin, to give us eternal life, to cause us to be born again in this living hope, but then, Father, you weren't satisfied to simply leave us ignorant. You gave us a Bible, you gave us your word, and we now have the grace provision to study to show ourselves approved. In fact, we in the church age have been given more than any believers ever in the history of the world. We have a Hebrew canon, we have a Greek canon, and we have spiritual gifts, Father, for which we can study and teach and minister one to another. In all these things, Father, it is just overwhelming how much you've given us. And we recognize to whom much is given shall much be required. Uh, When you've entrusted so much to us, you expect all the more. So, Father, we humble ourselves before you this day as your children, as your disciples, asking for your faithfulness to teach us what we need to learn on this day. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so in talking about perfection and the recognition that perfection does not come through Levi. If it did, then we wouldn't have a New Testament. If it did, the Old Testament would be the only testament, and the Levitical priesthood would be eternal. And, uh, and flesh could be justified. But the fact is, it couldn't. And because it couldn't, it served its purpose, it demonstrated the weakness of what it was, and then paved the way for what was to follow. In other words, human merit doesn't work. Grace is the program. Uh, what you can earn and deserve doesn't work. Works is out the window. It's faith. Faith is the mechanism by which we receive the grace that God is bestowing. And so the nature of this then becomes self-evident when you see what comes to replace what was never designed to be eternal. And we want to be clear on these things. And so if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, Jesus died for no reason whatsoever. And in fact, you nullify the grace of God. You nullify the cross. And uh, to do such a thing, I think, is, uh, is, is not only is it tragic, but it's, it kind of misses the whole point of Scripture. Did Christ die needlessly as it... Uh, as, as it says here. So we'll talk about this. Some of the later verses also are going to address that, that uh, we don't nullify the grace of God and we don't, uh, 
We don't uh, revoke the need for his sacrifice. I think, too, this is, what we, this is how we answer the pluralism of our generation. When you're talking to an atheist or a whoever, you're talking to somebody that has a non-biblical frame of reference, and they tend to think that, well, it doesn't matter, you know, everybody kind of gets to the same place, there's many paths and whatever, and as long as you're a good person, you know, God will take good Christians, he'll take good Buddhists, he'll take good Muslims and, and so forth, and they say there's many paths. The problem with that is that, that you've you got to reject that immediately and say, no, there is one path. The way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. There is one path. Because if there were two, forget the hundreds and thousands and many, if there are two paths, as long as there's a second option, then the cross is unnecessary. And Jesus could have been spared and the Father didn't have to send His Son. As long as there's a second path out there, but there's not. There's not a second path, there's not a third path, there's not many, many paths. You know, when Jesus said, He's praying and He's sweating great drops of blood in the garden, and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, the father could have easily said, well, yeah, you know, there's many paths. Let's just, let's just get you out of that and we'll tell humanity to do one of those other things that, that they want to do, all right? So the whole mindset of pluralism, the whole mindset, and that's the, that's the spirit of our age. We're steeped in that. Our culture is steeped in that. And so, so pervasive is it, I think sometimes we lose focus on how pervasive it is. We are exclusivists. And, and if they try to throw that label on you like it's an insult, gladly wear it like a badge of honor. We are exclusivists and happy, happily so, because truth is exclusive, always, always exclusive. So that's the, uh, the aspect on this. So the rhetorical question is answered, uh, if it was, then what need is there? There's no need at all, obviously. And since he came, there must have been a need. And uh, that need demonstrates the necessity. So uh, we have it here. And then in verse 12, when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. And so this introduces us to some things here in verse 12 with respect to necessity. And I hope we, we can identify this as a logical necessity. If you study formal logic or any aspects of this, you recognize this is a logical necessity. And it, uh, it follows by the nature of the logic, by the nature of the, of the thing itself. Necessity is not an attack on sovereignty. And maybe the biggest issue, and when I encounter it, I, I, I tend to encounter folks that are trying to defend sovereignty or they're trying to defend uh, their theology on, on their belief of, of what God is. And, and so they don't like the word need. They don't like the word necessity. And they don't, because to them it speaks of, of, of a deficiency, that God has a problem, God has a need, right? And that's a different use of need. It's different from a logical necessity. So we have weaknesses, and so we have needs. We're human, we're finite. We all have needs. God doesn't have needs. Not like that. Not like He has a deficiency that has to be remedied. Not like He gets hungry, or we have to, we minister to Him, or He lives in a house and we feed Him. God doesn't have needs like we have needs. But logical necessities, God's got an infinite number of logical necessities. He's got all kinds of needs, logically. Because he must be true to himself. He cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. He needs to be true to his own essence. He needs to make good on every promise he ever utters. And so all of God's have-tos, all of God's needs uh, speaks to the reality of his existence. So necessity is not an attack on sovereignty. Necessity is harmonious with reality. God is the eternal I am, exists and functions through infinite necessities, infinite necessities, and uh, far more than even our finite mind can grasp, really, when it comes down to it. So that's one thing. But then we talk about change in verse 12. When the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. And so there's a change, there's a need. God's program is going through an adjustment. Something is happening here. The, the Levitical priesthood's been in operation ever since Levi, and it's going and it's going. You know, they got the law at, uh, at Mount Sinai. It's been going and going and going. But when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent in two. And something now is different, all right? Something now is different. And we understand it uh, probably best of, of any modern uh, school of theology that's out there. I, I believe evangelical dispensationalism has a marvelous grasp on the unfolding plan of God. And that's what this is all about. Although God himself does not change, 
the unchanging God, he's immutable, unchanging, the unchanging God established a progressively unfolding eternal plan. A progressively unfolding eternal plan. All right, and I hope we're good on this. If not, just uh, absorb what you can here this morning and realize, wow, there's a big study ahead of me to really unfold this and to understand what's happening here. See, when Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, they weren't the first pastor and pastor's wife, all right? It wasn't church age. It was not the church in the Garden of Eden. And uh, so he has a progressive unfolding plan from innocence to conscience to human government to promise to law. Jesus was born under the law. We understand that. But now we're not under law, we're under grace, amen? And we want to be under grace. Who wants to throw away grace and go back to law? Not me, I'm telling you. And that's, that's uh, you'd have to be out of your mind to, uh, or under a witchcraft spell to want to abandon grace and go back to law, all right? And so why this unfolding? Why this progression? Why does it take 6,000 years of human history to unfold all these things? And what's coming up next? <laughs> all right? You know, once you start to realize, wow, God's got a plan and I'm part of that. Then you start to think, okay, well, what's coming up? What's next? And that's the rapture of the church, which we've been studying in the last hour and lately in the, uh, in the Philippians series, okay? So I would encourage that if you have an interest in, in the things to come. Well, the unchanging God established a progressively unfolding eternal plan. That's by design. And so we see glimpses of it. In fact, the book of Hebrews started this, this way in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. I mean, what's up with all that variety? Why progressively? Why sometimes it's a burning bush, sometimes it's a talking donkey. Sometimes it's, I mean, it's prophets or it's priests or it's judges in in all these different ways. You know, and why do we have all these different books in the Old Testament? Couldn't we just have one book? God in His wisdom is just genius in how He's putting these things out there. In, the, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. Now we have the keynote address. Now we have the main point of the universe. Whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made, not the world, the ages. It's ionos, it's age, and it's plural, it's ages. It's not cosmos, it's not world, it's not singular, it's ages. And so he's the heir of all things, and he's also the one through whom God the Father has created all things. All the ages are unfolding in the Father's plan as the Son executes that plan. All right? And you go, wow, this is a lot bigger than I thought it was. (laughs) I didn't know church was like this. I thought it was just, you know, some kind of a thing. You go, you feel good, you give some money, and you're a good person. Not how it works. All right? You study to show yourself approved. You grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you rightly divide the word of truth. That's 1,189 chapters from Genesis to Revelation. All of it we're accountable for. Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 11. In reality, where you and I live in the church age, this is a great big parenthesis. You and I live in a surprise that was never told ahead of time. The, the, the church where you and I are, are the bride of Christ and the royal family of God, all of this, this was never, ever, hint, I mean, was hinted at little glimpses, but no clear revelation to any prophet in the Old Testament. The angels weren't aware of it. These are things into which angels long to look. And so um, the idea that God would put His program for Israel on hold, not end it, but on hold, and then unveil a plan for the body of Christ and then resume his plan for Israel, once the body of Christ is removed, all of that is a brand new mystery in the church age, not revealed in the Old Testament. So uh, Ephesians 3 says, uh, if uh, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Now the Greek word musterion, mystery in the New Testament does not mean, you know, a whodunit murder mystery, Agatha Christie kind of a, a Sherlock Holmes mystery, all right? It's not a puzzle to solve. It is a hidden thing that was previously hidden but is now unveiled. That's what a musterion is. And so uh, it's, not a, it's not a puzzle for us to work out. It was something God chose 
information he withheld, information he kept under wraps until such time as he unveiled it to his apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Are we clear on that? It was Pentecost of 32 AD after the resurrection of 33 AD after the resurrection of Jesus Christ then that the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost and then the mystery was unveiled to the apostles and the prophets in the Spirit. And that mystery, namely, it's uh, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, this is Ephesians 3, 4, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. The Old Testament had tons of messianic prophecies and they were about a coming Messiah, a coming Savior. But nothing in those messianic prophecies of the Old Testament mentioned a body of believers in union with Him. A body of believers, neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, bond or free. That's the mystery of Christ. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. <laughs> in that upper room, the night He was betrayed, He promised them the Holy Spirit. And they were like, what? They, they didn't know. It was, it was just all, it was out of left field and they didn't know what to do. It was, there was nothing in the prophets that prepared them for that. Mystery, unveiled by the Holy Spirit after the day of Pentecost. So to be specific, verse 6, though the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the, through the gospel. So here we are in Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile. It's a marvelous thing. We're not dependent upon our, our race or our clans, our family, our nations, or, or where we might uh, be for all eternity based upon an earthly birth. Say, excluded from the covenant blessings of Israel because we didn't happen to be born of Jewish parents in the Jewish land. You know, I mean, I'm a Gentile dog from Germanic background, and what would, uh, you know, what would I have to look forward to in, in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ as an Old Testament believer? But see, in, in Christ, we are one body. And then he says, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. The church age is an age of power. <laughs> the Old Testament, they were given 613 commands in the law and no power to keep any of it. And they all failed miserably. There was no empowerment in in a Mosaic law, tablets of death with thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and you're going to get stoned to death when you do. You know, we live in the age of grace and the age of power as the Holy Spirit indwells us and, and teaches us and leads us and blesses us. He says, uh, this is the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Unfathomable. We get to fathom the unfathomable. How cool is that? Unfathomable to them, but now that mystery has been unfolded, we're fathoming the unfathomable. We're approaching the unapproachable. We know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. And so um, to bring to light what is the dispensation, the administration, the economy. You know, with new administrations come new economies. Not to get political this morning, but with new administrations come new economies, new economic policies, new realms of operation that maybe past administrations weren't thrilled with. All right? And maybe upcoming uh, administrations will intend to you know, change. So the changes happen with new administrations. We get this. This is, this is normal in our experience. Now God is illustrating how this is normal. This is His design in the spiritual experience. Israel had an economy, had a dispensation, had a stewardship. Now the church has a stewardship, has a dispensation, has an administration or an economy. And ours is a grace economy. It's a grace economy. And so to bring to light what is the dispensation of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, from Adam to Jesus, angels have been watching human history. 
They've been watching nations. They've been learning. They've been reporting. They've been going back to heaven and giving their reports on what they're learning, what they're observing. And now with all those years of observing the nations, now in the church, called out from every nation, now a heavenly people is providing the greatest instruction ever to the heavenly angels as they learn, as they observe the manifold wisdom of God. It's a beautiful thing. And it's an eternal purpose. The fact is, it's an eternal purpose. He planned this from the beginning. From the foundation of the world, this was always the destiny. This is not a backup plan. God's not scrambling like when a quarterback's play breaks down and he has to run for his life and try to make the best out of an ugly situation. God's not doing that. It's not as if his plan for Israel fell apart and now he's kind of scrambling trying to throw a Hail Mary to the church. Okay? Now this was always the eternal purpose that he's executing in the, in, carrying out in the person of Jesus Christ and us in Christ. So this is the, un, the unchanging God still, not a different God in all these dispensations, the same eternal God, but with an unfolding, changing plan. It's a progressive plan, progressively unfolding. First Peter 1 talks about this. It, it, some of the old prophets, they had glimpses and they had suspicions and they tried to lock those suspicions down and they weren't able to. God withheld it because God was keeping His own mystery. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So were they sloppy? They made careful searches and inquiries. And these are legitimate prophets. These are servants of God, spirit and dwell. These are servants of God with the privilege of inquiring upon the Lord. They could inquire upon the Lord and receive a verbal reply back. These are the prophets of Israel. And they made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time, two issues, person or time, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Okay? That's a deep verse right there, you know? If you're an Old Testament prophet, if you're an Old Testament believer, and you've got a Bible and it's talking about the coming Christ, and some of these passages are not too pleasant. Some of these passages are, are rough. A suffering Messiah, a slaughtered lamb, a, a death. You know, who wants to hear those, you know? I think I'd rather go to a different synagogue. Give me a happy rabbi that gives me the... Because there's other passages... There's other passages about a reigning Messiah and breaking the bonds of the Gentiles and ruling the world and kings coming in and bringing you treasures. Okay, yeah, those sound good. Let's go with those. Okay? And so if you're, if you're going to rightly divide the word of truth, I mean, it's clear which prophecies were popular and which ones were paid attention to. But now the prophets made careful searches and inquiries because they knew. No word of God can, can be false. No, no scripture can be broken. Somehow, even those passages we don't like are true. They're going to happen. And so, what do we do? This is true. This is true. How do we reconcile? How do we harmonize? And that's the puzzle. That's what we all do. If you're in a Bible teaching church that's rightly dividing the word of truth, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, this is us. This is what we do. And they had to do the same thing. They had to figure out, all right, suffering Messiah, reigning Messiah, suffering Messiah, reigning Messiah. And so in some cases, their solution was two people, two Messiahs. And to this day, the Jewish uh, doctrine, the Jewish theology, the Jewish idea is that there's Messiah uh, ben David, there's Messiah ben Joseph. And so there's a suffering Messiah, there's a reigning Messiah. And they kind of think that, well, there's got to be two Messiahs, got to be two Messiahs. Another group comes along and says, no, we're pretty sure it's one Messiah, but he's possibly coming twice. There's one Messiah and there's two different times that are spoken of. There's a time of suffering and there's a time of glory. And so that's the conundrum then. And, and really, when it comes to reading verse 11, seeking to know, this is 1 Peter 1.11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. That's what they were puzzling over. Okay? And I believe fundamentally, this is what John the Baptist was puzzling over. 
John the Baptist was under arrest. He was about to lose his head. And when you read that record, I think it's Matthew 11, when you read that record, it almost seems like he's a weak sister. It almost seems like he's lost his faith. It almost seems like it is. It's Matthew chapter 11. Uh, John, while in prison, heard the works of Christ and sent word by his disciples. And I tell you, when I've heard this preached in different places, usually it's pretty critical on, on, uh, on John here. Like somehow he's lost his faith. Like somehow he's having a crisis moment when Jesus said he's the greatest human being that's ever lived. He's the, he's the greatest of those born among women. This is not a faith crisis. So he sent word by his disciples and he said, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? It's that very same question. Are you the expected one? Are you the one and only Christ that's going to come a second time? Or are you the first of two Christs? In other words, should we expect in someone else in addition to you? So it wasn't a, a weak moment. I think it was a victory. I think this was a shining moment for John the Baptist. Because every prophet before him wanted this answer. And he was on the verge of getting this answer as the greatest Old Testament believer ever. Okay? And uh, no, not my opinion, verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born among, among women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Okay? So uh, there you have it. That's, that makes him the greatest Old Testament saint ever. And yet, this wasn't a crisis moment for him. He's trying, this is a victory. He's going to get his questions answered. What person or time? And so when Jesus gives the answer, some people say it's a non-answer. I, I think it's a perfect answer for the fact that this is, uh, when he says, uh, when he talks about, uh, he quotes Isaiah and he says, go and report to John what you see, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he said, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. It's one Christ and he's coming back for a second advent. That's, uh, that's the doctrine out of Isaiah. Anyway, it's a progressively unfolding eternal plan. And the sooner we get on board with that, the sooner we adjust our thinking, the sooner that we really become functional members of the royal family of God. Not just, you know, born-again people that try to be nice, okay? Moralistic therapeutic deism is not, is not the Christian way of life in the church age. Yes, we're born-again people, and it's okay to be nice. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But niceness does not define, it's not the essence of our Christianity. We are soldiers, ambassadors, priests. And the book of Hebrews shows us we are Melchizedek, royal high priest. We need to be about our father's business. And, and having this dispensational framework is vital, absolutely vital to exercising this. And so that's what I think verse 12 is, is all about. All right, now getting into verses 13 and 14 then. Hebrews 7 verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> so we have what's obvious. It is evident. It is obvious. Perfection didn't come through the law. It's obvious. There's a, a better priesthood on the scene now. It's obvious. <coughs> there's a change of law or there's a change of operations. It's obvious. Jesus even hinted at it when he said, an hour is coming and now is when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father because the church age is global. The church age is every believer in every place. Verse 13, for the one concerning whom these things are spoken, <laughs> all of these Christological prophecies are about Christ. The one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. He's from Judah. He was born of, of Mary, his adopted father Joseph. They were Judeans. He was born of the tribe of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Bethlehem Ephrathah in the tribe of Judah. He's the one concerning whom these things are spoken. And so it's obvious. He's not a Levite. The Levitical priesthood couldn't perfect anything and he's not Levitical, so here we go. These things should be obvious. It is evident, verse 14, or it is obvious that our Lord was descended from Judah. <coughs> I mean, how many of these genealogies do we have? 
in Genesis, in Chronicles, in Matthew, in Luke, we get these genealogies. And, uh, you know, for a lot of us, a lot of, not us, not this room, of course, a lot of people reading their Bibles, those, those begat chapters get, get skipped. You just blow past those and who cares? Oh, they're vital. We better care. The promises God made as it pertains to each tribe, as it pertains to the Jewish people, and specifically Judah within all those tribes. Uh, this, is, this is significant. And so it is ev- evident, it is obvious that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. You can scan everything Moses wrote. There is nothing about a Judah priest anywhere. Okay? And yet, what do we have? <laughs> what is our culture? Uh, Judah's priest? What's up with that? All right. And it's clearer still. In verse 15, I'm getting ahead of myself, but if it's obvious and obvious and obvious in 12, 13, 14, and obvious in 11, so we got four verses of obviousity, and then in verse 15, it is clearer still. (laughs) So he's making his point, and he's doing it very methodically and very undeniably. He's walking his readers through this progression where uh, it's, it's really, it's inescapable. You've got to come to the conclusion he brings them to in the, in the logic of this text. All right, so details from 13 and 14. The one concerning whom these things are spoken. You know who the celebrity of the universe is? You know who the celebrity of the Bible is? The, the, the central figure of all prophecy is Jesus Christ. The entire conversation regarding Melchizedek wasn't really about Melchizedek. It was about Jesus. The entire conversation regarding Abraham wasn't really about Abraham. It's about Jesus. Okay? To Abraham and to his seed, that's Jesus. Levi, was it really about Levi? It's about Jesus. Because Levi is just a foreshadowing. Levi is an anticipation. It's a, it's a, it's a picture. It's a type it has a purpose. The law was designed to lead us to the gospel. So the entire conversation regarding Melchizedek, Abraham, Levi, and Aaron actually concerns their typology in anticipation of the coming Messiah. It concerns their typology in anticipation of the coming Messiah. All of this, it's all about Jesus. Same thing with our priesthood too, by the way. It's not to magnify us. We're priests after Jesus. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. He entered as a forerunner within the veil. When we enter the veil, that's behind our forerunner. That's in service to him and with him. John 5 and verse 46. If you're familiar with this, I think it's an important principle. Here he is, and of course, all of these uh, Pharisees, they're Bible experts, and yet uh, there's no faith on their part. There's a lot of arrogance, there's a lot of pride. He says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. You know, you come and you get doctrine, you come here on a Sunday morning, you're learning information. I tell you, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if you're learning a bunch of facts and yet you're not seeing how it connects to Jesus and how we walk in Jesus, we're missing the big point of, the, of why we're even here today. It is these that testify about me and you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You want knowledge, why? So you can control other people? The Pharisees were great about putting rules on other people, creating this big religious structure so they could run people's lives but they were unwilling to come to me. I think a lot of unbelievers reject the gospel, not because they don't understand it. They reject the gospel because they do understand it and they're unwilling to accept the terms. He says, I do not receive glory from men. I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. 
So they're not willing to accept it. And they're so steeped in their own arrogance, they can't accept it. He says, do, you, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you've set your hope. Oh, that must have hurt them. More than, to hear that, they idolized Moses. They viewed themselves, they put themselves in the seat of Moses. They viewed themselves as their own modern day Moses, Moseses. And he says, Moses will condemn you on judgment day. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So don't miss the point. If you're studying a tabernacle, learn that, but understand Moses was writing about Jesus. Okay? That's important. Luke 24, in the great cognition of Luke 24, 27, 44, and 45, when he opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. And... uh, the two men on the Damascus road, he goes home with them, and that night he's teaching them. But on the way to the village, uh, verse 27, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. So he's systematic. Start with the Pentateuch, that's beginning with Moses, but then cover all revealed Scripture. They only had the Old Testament, they didn't have the New Testament yet. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Because this is me, this is me, this is me. Verse 44, he's in the upper room with the uh, disciples. He said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's the Tanakh right there. That's the definition of the Hebrew scriptures. The law, the prophets, the writings. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Isn't that beautiful? <coughs> Some people try to blend this with the great commission of Matthew 28. I don't, this is not great commission. This is a separate episode. The great commission is when he called them to make disciples. That's why I titled this not the great commission, but the great cognition, which I'm going to trademark and I'm going to start collecting royalties when people try to write books with that title. But when he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, this is the great cognition. Everything in the Old Testament was about him. And very quickly, when they receive the Holy Spirit, they're going to be able to start processing that and seeing their new role in the Melchizedek priesthood in the body of Christ. So this entire conversation regarding Melchizedek, Abraham, Levi, and Aaron actually concerns their typology in anticipation of the coming Messiah. That's powerful because they've been waiting for their Messiah, waiting for their Messiah. And everything in the Old Testament was geared towards this coming Messiah. Even from the point of original sin, it was going to be the coming one, the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. That's been the anticipation ever since the Garden of Eden. And uh, that's why we have what we have here in the written scriptures. All right. Secondly, you know, also, you know what I learned yesterday? I spent a day... I, had a, I have a Jewish friend. I spent much of yesterday with him. I, I kind of made a passing comment. I didn't realize how earth-shattering it was. I made a passing comment, and he said, stop. He said, say that again. What was that? Because, of course, he's Jewish, right? He'd been going to synagogue all his life, and his whole perspective of, of, of Messiah is, is Old Testament. And uh, when I talked about Jesus of Nazareth, because he brought it up, and I said, Jesus of Nazareth was the son of David. He was the heir to the Davidic throne. Father to son, father to son, father to son, from David to Solomon all the way down, through Zedekiah, all the way down to Jesus of Nazareth, he was entitled to the throne of David. And, and my friend never heard that before. He never knew that. No one had ever told him that before. He said, how come we don't know that? What's that about? And then he said, I've got to look into that. That's, that seems important. <laughs> So pray, if you would. I said, it is important, critically important. Who is the Christ? And uh, anyway, so I was thrilled with that. And, and, and it just so dovetailed with you know, what we're studying here this morning. All of this typology is anticipation of the coming Christ. And then it goes on to say, um, with respect to Judah, the tribe of Judah has no priesthood function anywhere in the law anywhere in the law. 
If you can find a Judah priest in the law, I want to know about it. There is a king of Judah who usurped the priesthood, and it didn't turn out too well for him. And we'll see that here in 2 Chronicles 26. But let's start, though, with the prophecy of Judah in Genesis 49.10. Genesis 49.10. Because here's uh, Jacob, and Jacob is uh, renamed Israel, and he's getting ready to die, and he's uttering prophecies as it relates to his sons. And the Judah prophecy... Really, the key verse is verse 10. There's context that surrounds that. Um, so yeah, Judah in verse 8, your brothers shall praise you. Your, um, and, and you know the, the name of praise is significant here when Leah gave names to her children. Uh, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. This is all true. This is all prophecy. This is all yet to be uh, manifested because in first advent, he didn't conquer as the lion. In first advent, he came as the lamb and submitted himself and accomplished our salvation. But that doesn't mean this is wrong. It means this is yet to be manifest, but it will be. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor shall the ruler's staff from between his feet until the one comes to whom it belongs, as Shiloh, until Shiloh comes. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is, this is the, the messianic promise of Messiah from the line of Judah. He ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, his teeth white from milk. That takes you into some millennial, second advent and millennial fulfillments. All right, so there's Judah. Anything in there about an altar? Anything in there about a priesthood? About an ephod? About a Urim and Thummim or anything? Now, Judah gives no clues at all for any kind of priesthood function. When a king of Judah attempted to usurp that office, 2 Chronicles 26, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. If you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, you've gone too far. 2 Chronicles 26. You think, whoever turns to 2 Chronicles? Didn't even know my Bible had a 2 Chronicles. What is this? 2 Chronicles. Chronicles is the priestly parallel to Samuel and Kings. Samuel and Kings, it's the same story, the same narrative, but whereas Samuel and Kings tends to be more earthly and, and political and from a framework of, of uh, you know, David and the military things and, and, and earthly conquering, the same story gets told a second time in First and Second Chronicles, but it has a priestly emphasis and it comes from the perspective of the priests. May very well have been Jeremiah even writing it. See, all right. So Second Chronicles twenty six, the introduction here to Uzziah. All the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was sixteen years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. So this is the beginning of his reign, and he did some good things. Um, he built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old and became king. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. But he's got the longest reign of anyone until Manasseh comes along. And um, his mother's name was Jekyllah, I guess, of Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amazi had done. So he's basically a good king on the good king list. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Isn't that our prayer for our president, our prayer for our governor, prayer for our leaders, that they be seeking the Lord, that they have divine viewpoint even while they rule in temporal life? Well, then uh, we can skip over some of this other stuff. There's battle and there's things here with the Philistines. But um, get down to verse 16. When he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. 
You think, well, how could he do that after all those successes? Well, look at David, right? David was a man after God's own heart, but he reached a point where he started to blow it in his kingly duties, sent his troops out to war while he partied all night and, and fornicated and all the other stuff he was doing with Bathsheba. And we know how that ended. So here's Uzziah, same thing, unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, I've got to ask you here, I mean, is this, this is no better, no worse than, you know, our sin patterns. Sometimes we have lascivious sin patterns and we want to commit adultery and fornicate and kill our husband and do all that kind of stuff. Or we just get extra religious and we decide to go into the temple and we decide to start offering sacrifices. Well, wait a minute. So whether it's the, the licentious side or the lascivious side or whatever, whatever trends your sin nature takes you to, if you want to be a self-righteous, do-gooder, self-moral sinner, that's no better than the immorally depraved, fornicating sinner. All right. And look where it takes him. So he goes into the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah, Azariah, the priest entered after him and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they opposed Uzziah the king. So here's some courage. And uh, so there are priests and they are valiant. They're not the mighty men of valor that were, you know, the, the, the military forces, but same language applies to the priesthood. So they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, notice, you know, here he is getting hyper-religious and being told he can't do it, and it's making him mad. While he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold, it was, he was leprous on his forehead and they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. So King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. You know why he lived so long? It wasn't a reign of blessing. He, it was divine discipline length of days in the misery of his physical health condition. He was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. He ended up with a co-regency, a vice-regency, as it's called, where the, the father is still alive, but he's not functional, and the, uh, the son is uh, acting in his name and reigning as king. So, yeah, that's a, that's a train wreck. So the rest of the Acts of Uzziah, first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written. I mean, it's not like he had bad doctrine. So Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings. They said, he is a leper. And Jotham, his son, became king in his place. All right. So the tribe of Judah had no priesthood function anywhere in the law. And when this one Judah king decided to make himself a priest. He died a leper at the end of his days. So Jesus as a priest clearly can't be a Levitical priest. Clearly he's not going to defy the Lord and bust out in leprosy while he's hanging on the cross. But he did minister as a priest. He went to the cross both as the offering and the offerer and the altar. It was upon the altar of his own soul that he poured out his life. So he was the priest, he was the offering, and he was the altar as he went to the cross and purchased our eternal life. But it wasn't a Levitical priesthood. Levi can't perfect anything. Melchizedek priesthood, on the other hand, now we're talking. Now we're talking about an eternal priesthood. Now we're talking about a heavenly people. Now we're talking about an incorruptible life. Sin was imputed to him, but he was not a sinner. He accepted the wrath, but he was not a sinner. And when he died, it was impossible for him to be held in the power of death. The incorruptible life is the hallmark of his priesthood and it's the hallmark of our priesthood. That's why this passage is so glorious. It's a fun thing to 
to work your way through and to think about as we deal with this. All right, so verse 15. Where am I? Hebrews 7, 15. All right, so verse 11 is obvious. Verse 12 is obvious. Verse 13 is obvious. Verse 14 is obvious, and it says that it's obvious. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Now verse 15, and it is clearer still. So it's past obvious, right? We're way past obvious now. Now we're in obvious and undeniable. Everybody should be embracing this. It is evident. It is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. Now up till now we've had order of Melchizedek, order of Melchizedek, order of Melchizedek, order of Aaron. Right? Because uh, we just saw that in verse 11. Order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Aaron. So we've had order, 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 order. Here we have likeness. So another priest arises in the image, according to the likeness, it says, of Melchizedek. And now we're going to have trans-clarity clarity. It's going to be clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. Well, how did Melchizedek arise? Seemingly, he just popped in out of nowhere. How did Melchizedek arise? Well, there was this conflict going on everywhere. And then Melchizedek appeared. And he brought bread and wine and he fellowshiped with Abraham. So here's another arisal. Jesus arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. And we have the sinless Son of God. We have His indestructible life. We have the life that He bestows on each one of us. Indestructible life. For it is attested of Him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's not a promise that can be given to a mortal human being that's not going to live forever. How can you promise him an eternal priesthood if he's going to live another 90 years max, right? 80 years max, whatever it is. But to promise a coming one that he is an eternal priest requires eternal life, requires an indestructible life. All right. Then this is going to feed into all these other, on the one hand, on the other hand, conclusions in... uh, some upcoming verses, but still focus on the type of Melchizedek here in verses 15 through 17. Self-evident becomes even more evident when a high priest in the image of Melchizedek is revealed. Self-evident becomes even more evident. When a high priest in the image of Melchizedek is revealed. It's curious to me, Melchizedek was not called a high priest. He was called a king and he was called a priest. And he prophesied. He was called a king, king of Salem. And he was called a priest of El Elyon. A priest of God Most High. But we never see a Melchizedek priesthood again. We never see associated with Melchizedek fellow believers, fellow priests. He was all by himself when he came and, and worshipped with Abraham. And then he disappeared. Off the scene. Like Jesus died on the cross, rose again, went to heaven. Melchizedek disappeared after, after Genesis 14. And when is another Melchizedek priest going to show up? Where might another Melchizedek priest make an appearance? Well, Jesus in the first Advent ministry. And he went to the cross as a Melchizedek priest. And then a Melchizedek high priest because in the sacrifice that he offered, it was not for himself. It was for all of us. So he's not only a Melchizedek priest, in the very act of his sacrifice, in redeeming many sons to glory, he becomes the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is a high priest after the likeness of Melchizedek. So um, it becomes even more evident. He comes in the likeness of Melchizedek. Image and likeness doctrines, they're very significant biblical themes going back to Genesis, going back to the creation of Adam, the whole concept of likeness comes out again and again and again. And the use of such language here would have tremendous impact on the first recipients of this epistle. 
The first recipients of this epistle being themselves Levitical priests that had come in to be church age believers. Tremendous impact on them. And we better not lose that impact ourselves. Because it really it's, it kind of defines the whole process. It defines what we are as believer priests in Christ. It, it manifests the fact that we are what we are because of our indestructible life we received at the moment we're saved. <laughs> you know, to try to go back to legalism, to try to earn and deserve something by merit, are you kidding me? That never works. The end thereof is death. That's just, uh, that's just uh, a failure waiting to happen because we all fall short of the glory of God. Why would we want to do something on the basis of works? On the basis of a... a and, and everyone that tries to become a super legalist to, to please God, I notice that none of them are Levites, none of them are Jewish, none of them are, you know, so they're trying to be Gentile facsimiles of Jewish legalism, which to me is just doubly stupid, Okay. Just dump all that and, and embrace grace. It's the indestructible life. All right. Well, hopefully we're familiar with this. I'm almost out of time, but we can uh, we can at least get a start, pick up here next week. But um, I mean, realize when God created man, it was to image him. Genesis one twenty six. Let us make man in our image. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Notice that design, that creation is what allows for the function. Because in the image and likeness of God is why we reign, not because we've earned it or deserved it. Likewise, with the indestructible life Christ gives us in our, at the moment of salvation, we're, we're priests. We're Melchizedek priests. Not because we've earned it or deserved it or could work for it. So there's image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. They start procreating and it's in the image of their father. Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. And then notice verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. And so the principle of image and likeness that gets conveyed through the generations, through human procreation. Seth was in the image of Adam as Adam was in the image of God. So these things are, are vital. Now how is someone going to be in the image and likeness of Melchizedek when there's no lineage, there's no descent. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Who's going to come in that likeness? Jesus comes in that likeness. In the virgin birth, Jesus comes in that likeness. And he functions as a Melchizedek high priest on the cross. And then he gives that indestructible life to you and to me. And now we get to join him. We also bear that likeness. As we bore the likeness of the earthly, we bear the likeness of the heavenly. And bearing that likeness of the heavenly equips us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. Who do we think we are? Say, and yet here we have it. Uh, Romans 6.5. All the theology of Romans. And in the midst of this, If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Isn't this beautiful? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, that moment you by faith accept His gift, you become a believer, this is your heritage. From that split second, you trust Christ for eternal life. And the Holy Spirit baptizes you into union, the likeness of His death, the likeness of His resurrection. It's a significant biblical theme. Chapter 8 and verse 3. What the law could not do, this is Romans, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Remember, the law could perfect nobody. The law was temporary. The law was finite. It was obsolete. It it had a designed obsolescence. We're going to see that. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. 
sending His own Son, notice, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's why He was born of a virgin. That's why He was true humanity. That's why He walked this earth in His sinless human walk. That's why it wasn't the angel of the Lord that went to the cross. It wasn't the burning bush or any other manifestation of Christ that went to the cross. It was the hypostatic union, God-man, and the sinlessness of humanity, God in the flesh. Sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We don't keep the law. The requirements are fulfilled in us. Big difference when we walk by faith in Christ. Finally, Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself. We've studied this lately in our Philippians series. He did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made, what's the word? In the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man. You know, it's, it's a glorious thing. Because Adam was in the image of God and the God who created him came in the image of man. Humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the use of such language here would have tremendous impact on the first recipients of this epistle. Only an indestructible life can facilitate an eternal priesthood. We receive this life and so we receive this priesthood. You can't be a Levitical priest unless your dad was a Levitical priest. In fact, you can't be the high priest unless your dad was the high priest. And then, uh, well, until the Romans came in and started monkeying with some of their high priests and they made some shady appointments. But, you know, the, you could become the high priest and not even be saved. An unbeliever could be high priest. Just as long as his dad was high priest. You know? Salvation was disconnected from stewardship under Israel's dispensation. Not so with us. You can't even become a part of the body of Christ without eternal life. So for us, every, every member of our stewardship is, is regenerate, is born again. Not true in the Old Testament. They had all kinds of unregenerate, unbelieving stewards as an earthly stewardship in the midst of other earthly nations. So um, this prophecy of a priest forever speaks of an eternal priesthood that requires an indestructible life. We receive this life and so we receive this priesthood. I'll have to close with this. But take the time this week. 1 Peter 1 and start with verse 17 and then go all the way down to chapter 2 and keep going until you get to verse 10 of chapter 2. And you'll see the priesthood language in here. You're going to see the, the sacrifice language in here. You're going to see the indestructible life in here and who we are in Christ. I guess I can keep preaching until Molly comes back, right? Yeah, let's just do it. 1 Peter 1.17 If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on this earth. This is just a sojourn. This is our stay. Our real residence is in heaven. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So this is us. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now notice, you see how powerful this is? You have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. You know the seed that birthed you? The sperm that, the spiritual sperm and seed that gave you the spiritual life in Christ? Indestructible. What kind of life do we have? Indestructible life. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. And what's the consequence for that? 1 Peter chapter 2, our priesthood. We come to Him as living stones. We offer sacrifices. So here's your reading assignment for the week. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 2.10. And recognize you and I have that indestructible life 
the indestructible seed that birthed us, the indestructible life that now we function in our priesthood as choice and living stones, choice and precious in the sight of God. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this truth. I thank you for the book of Hebrews. It was powerful the day it was written to impact those priests that were considering a return to Judaism, a return to Jerusalem, a return to Levi. And yet in Christ, the Melchizedek priesthood is so much greater. Father, I thank you that for the impact Hebrews had on the recipients originally, but it continues to have impact on us today. It shapes our priesthood and our understanding of who we are in, in the heavenly places in Christ. And Father, a day is coming when we're raptured out of here. This book is going to sustain your Jewish servants through their tribulation and it's going to have a third impact um, in, a, in, a, in a very unique way in the tribulation of Israel. So in all these things, Father, it's a, it's a glory to study this book. They're not easy. Melchizedek doctrine is not for the slow of hearing. So I pray, Father, for anyone here today or listening on the MP3, Father, that, uh, that they would have the, the fear of God to to just have humility and study to show themselves approved and grow and learn. Open our eyes, Father, to this powerful truth so that we can function biblically in our Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.